Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. All right, everyone, welcome back to Born to Write. Today's guest is Dory Clark. Now, I've been an incredible fan of Dory for a while, kind of on the outside watching, and this is our first conversation. And what's great about talking to somebody you've admired is you get to learn more about them in depth. But Dory's an incredible writer. Her new book is what drew me to her, The Entrepreneur You, Monetizing Your Expertise, Creating Multiple Income Streams, and Thrive, which I am looking forward to hearing all about from her perspective. And not only that, but she is the author of many books, one of which stand out was named number one leadership book in 2015 by Inc. She's been a former presidential campaign spokeswoman. She's a contributor to multiple magazines and journals, Harvard Review, Washington Post, all these different places where she's been noticed as a lecturer at Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, Berkeley, Georgetown, the list goes on. Dory, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's incredible. So what I love to talk to authors about really is the stuff that books look like before their books. Like, where do the ideas come from in you? Like, I know you have a niche of where you support a lot of entrepreneurs, which I'm so grateful for. Your content's so helpful. But where do you like discover your books? How do they get born? How do they like come to you? Oh, for me, it's, it's really about research questions that I want to have answered, essentially. I have gotten the ideas for my books based on the information that I want to know. And because I started my career as a journalist, the way that I know how to find information, I guess, is I guess my first instinct is, oh, let me just interview a bunch of cool people about that and see what they have to say so I can learn from them. And then after that, I would feel selfish keeping all of the information to myself. So that's uh, usually a good indicator for me that, that it's a worthwhile subject for a book. I love that. I, I think that's that's a great place to start. A curiosity and having some question you want answered. And, you know, in your book, Entrepreneur You, you, you did do a lot of interviews. What was it like? Like, as a journalist, you probably are used to it. But for people who aren't familiar with the process, what was it like contacting people? How did you conduct the interviews? Did you record them and transcribe them? Did you take notes? Did you do it from your mind? What was the process like for you? I think that a lot of people imagine that it would be much harder to get people to agree to interviews than it actually is. I got so many questions about, oh, how did you get these folks to to say yes? But the vast majority of people, I mean, probably 95% of the people that I asked to be interviewed for my books said yes. And part of it, I think, perhaps, was that I was publishing my books with Portfolio, which is the business imprint of Penguin, or with Harvard Business Review Press. So I sort of had the, the brand name of the institution behind it. But even when that's not the case, I think that there's a lot of people that really are, I mean, the concept of a book still carries a lot of weight. And I think that for many people, it's really still considered an honor to be interviewed in a book. A blog post is great, but in some ways it's a little bit more disposable is not the word, but you know, maybe impermanent in a way that, it, right. that an actual book is not. And so I got a very positive response when I was reaching out to people. The way that I did the interviews structurally is that I like to cluster them in time because I want to have as much of my research done as possible before I start writing the book. That's because I want to 
be able to kind of look at the information in its totality so that I can make sense of the narrative arc of the book. And just once I get going, I want to keep going. So for my latest book, Entrepreneurial You, I signed the contract for it in November of 2015. And I spent the next month or so just teeing up the interviews. So I conducted close to 50 between January and February of 2016. And so it was the primary thing that I did. I mean, I was obviously doing multiple ones per week. I interviewed them on Zoom. So I, I filmed it and I was able to capture the audio and the video. And then I sent it off to a transcriptionist. I used Rev.com yeah. to, to get the, the transcripts. And then that's what I worked off of in writing the book. That's great. So those interviews, you captured those interviews and you had them transcribed. I love Rev. And they actually have something new, what I enjoy, partner platform they have called Temi, T-E-M-I.com. And it allows you to upload the MP3. It doesn't use a live person like Rev, but it computer generates a transcription. And I've heard good things about it. It's pretty accurate, and it's actually a fraction of the cost. And for podcasts, you know, transcripts has actually worked really great. But for people that are listening, if you you know think, wow, you know, a dollar a minute actually is not that expensive if you think about your own time. But if that's still too much, Temi's a great way to maybe record somebody and get some transcriptions. So when you get back to transcription and you start looking at it, what? How do you then decide? Okay, what am I going to use? Do I use their words? Do I? Do I reword this in my own words? What do you, how do you, what's your process? So I then, so as I mentioned, I spent January and February of 2016 doing the interviews for Entrepreneurial U. And I have a pretty structured process that I've developed over time. So I spent March and April basically rereading all of the transcripts and then culling out the pieces that were relevant and putting them into chapter order. So essentially, over the course of an hour-long interview with someone like you know, your pal, Pat Flynn, who is profiled in Entrepreneurial U, we might talk about a lot of different things. We might talk about email list building, or we might talk about podcasting, obviously. We might talk about blogging. And so for each of those categories, they appeared in separate sections of the book. And so I would take the interesting and relevant parts and essentially just do some some cutting and pasting on my computer. But if there was a section of our conversation about blogging that was really relevant, I would, in a very undifferentiated way, just kind of take it and plunk it into the file for chapter four or whatever it was on blogging. And I would do the same for all of the interviews so that the end product that I had at that point was not necessarily you know, incredibly well-ordered, but all the content about blogging was in one place. All of the content about podcasting was in another place, et cetera. And so then the next phase was me reading through that, making a kind of head-to-head determination about which quotes, which pieces of information were most relevant. And then on a more micro level, I could begin to build an outline from the ground up of the key pieces that I wanted to be sure to cover in each chapter. And so I then spent roughly from May to July of 2016 doing that and creating a first draft of the book. Great. So did you structure your questions differently for each interview or? I did structure my questions differently. I I had some, some common ones. I mean, in the case of Entrepreneurial You, which is a book about how to create multiple income streams in your business, I would certainly be asking people, so, you know, what, what are the different income streams in your business? And, you know, how, 
what was the starting point and then how did you end up expanding into these new areas, et cetera. But after that, it became a little bit of a choose your own adventure because obviously if someone was a really big blogger, I would want to go into depth about that. Whereas if that was not an area of focus, they would probably just have less information to offer. So we kind of went down the decision tree based on which areas they had knowledge and experience in. Great. How did you decide the right amount of interviewees? Because 50 is a lot. It might seem like a lot to some and it may not seem very many to you. How did you decide what would be the right amount? So I made a list, first of all, of just the people that I thought were really interesting and definitely wanted to talk to. But I also have done three books now. So there was Reinventing You, Standout, and Entrepreneurial You. And for the latter two, for Standout and Entrepreneurial You, I did about 50 interviews for both of them. And so through practice, essentially, I through the experience of Standout, I decided that that was a pretty good number. You will often see if something is a, a very, very heavily researched book, you might see you know, 200 interviews or something like that. That would be the case if you were, for instance, writing a biography of someone. You would be uh, very comprehensive about it because the goal is you want to get every perspective. You don't want to miss anything. It's kind of built into the nature of the value proposition is that it needs to be something very exhaustive. For a book like mine, which is more you know, business strategies and things like that, it leans a little bit more heavily on personal experience. I wrote about my own experience in the book, so that took up some of it. But the goal is not necessarily to tell you everything you need to know about monetization. It's more curated. And so I figured that for me, 50 was kind of a good balance of comprehensive enough so that it wasn't just me spouting off about, here's what I did, and you can do exactly what I did. You know, we were getting a range of perspectives and experiences, but it wasn't trying to overwhelm the reader with details. Right. And in in the entrepreneur space, did you find it a challenge to find or balance out the gender equity? Because I, I, I wonder about that when you're trying to find entrepreneurs. It seems those who tend to be more public have to be male. Did you worry about it? Did you think about the, the gender balance or did, did you just look for the right people with the right content? Yeah, it, it was certainly something that I was cognizant of, although my goal you know, was to talk to the most interesting and relevant people. And so I was going to be pursuing that regardless of their, their gender or their background. If I knew someone had good experience to share in a particular area, then that's the information that I wanted. But you're absolutely right. In fact, one of Harvard Business Review Press, which was my publisher for Entrepreneurial U, one of the readers they do this this process, which is common in academic publishing. It's pretty uncommon, actually, in mainstream business publishing, but HBR has kind of academic origins. And that is that they have this kind of panel of pre-readers, these um, sort of outside panelists read it as kind of a final step to determine whether HBR really does want to publish it. And so one of the reviewers, they're all anonymous, was quibbling about that, about the, the gender ratios, because while there are women in the book, you know, some very talented entrepreneurs that I profiled, like my good friend Jenny Blake and Selena Sue and Natalie Sisson and, and people like that, the majority of people that I, that I talked about were male. I think that if you get more into the health and wellness space, there are a lot of very successful 
female entrepreneurs. I mean, we think about the the Gwyneth Paltrow's of the world, right. and you know, there's a lot of people who have done quite well for themselves with health or beauty or fitness, et cetera. But that's not really the the world that I am coming out of. The lessons are transferable, but the space that I knew more was about marketing and business and careers. And unfortunately, it's pretty male. But you know, I figured in the end, everybody can learn from these strategies. It's not gendered, really, how you build your podcast or how you, how you grow your email list or how you get sponsored posts for your blog. So I wanted to have the best information and then just enable people to have access to that. Right. That makes sense. And um, when you're looking for these people, are there people that you said, look, let me look for the top people in your niche? Or did you use the relationships? Did you use your connections to find the best people if you didn't maybe already know them or connect with them? I knew personally almost everybody that I interviewed in Entrepreneurial U. However, I had worked pretty assiduously over the past few years to be connecting with and cultivating relationships with people who were at high levels in their field. So I was uh, in a fortunate position where you know most of the people that I wanted to talk to were, were folks that I already knew and were friends with. There were some exceptions, but in those cases, I tried to get warm introductions. So for instance, I have a section in the book talking about email list growth and community building. And I thought it would be a good idea to talk to a gentleman named Ryan Levesque, who wrote a a really good book called Ask about survey methodology. And I did not know him personally. So I asked for an introduction. I think it was from my friend, Selena Sue, who I was also profiling in the book. And she was, you know, very nice, and she was happy to do it because I think in her mind it was uh, a bit of a a win-win to be able to help me connect with Ryan, but also to enable him to get featured in a Harvard Business Review Press book. So she was glad to do that, and Ryan was very gracious. Right. Yeah, I met I met Ryan in Austin. He is quite gracious. He's a wonderful writer as well, and his his stuff is fantastic. I first learned of him, I think, through Pat Flynn, but. Yeah, he's he's great. And that's good that's good for people to hear that, you know, if you're doing some work and you're trying to get connections, if you know one person, they might know two or three and maybe won't introduce you to all of them. Sometimes I do get people asking me to introduce them to a lot of people. I said, Well, a one introduction kind of thing per person is really nice. If you start making a list of things, it becomes work for the other person. So you definitely gotta I feel like I use my network and protect them as friends more than I use them to benefit myself or the people that would want to use them. So I think it's really great to use relationships as a way to grow even your content for your book. Yes, absolutely. So what's your process when you, you've gotten a rough draft? Because I think most people that I talk to don't get to the rough draft stage because they try to make it perfect along the way. What's your process to getting to that first ugly first draft? <laughs> yeah. So I, in writing the, the first draft, again, as I mentioned, it's in a lot of ways a pastiche because I have just kind of assembled these bits of of interviews and kind of plopped them all together. I think of it as kind of like, you know, I'm not much of a of a chef. And so some people say, oh, do you like cooking? And I say, well, you know, I don't really cook, but I do assemble food. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's kind of like, you know, like I could do a taco bar, right? R- like I'll right. set up all the ingredients for a make your own taco bar, which is actually a pretty good meal. And similarly, for something like this, I just put together all of the relevant material, all of the similar material. And I then just try to see, all right, what is the logical order? You know, what is the what are the questions that a reader is going to have? And how can I try to answer them 
in turn in a logical fashion so that the reader is not banging their head against a wall saying, but wait, what about blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And instead, I am predicting their questions in the order that they will ask them so that it will feel like a nice logical flow to them. If I can do that, that's all I need to do. That is the win. And that's really what I'm striving for in that first draft. So it's really kind of assembling and pasting together stuff, just putting it in the right order and then, you know, slapping together some transitions so that it kind of makes sense. And then you can smooth it out later. Right. So, and then what's your process after that? Because a lot of people don't realize, and I'm not sure I realize this completely, was that really writing a book is more of a team sport once it comes out of you. And there's plenty of people to help. Do you uh, elicit help early on? Do you get developmental help or do you quickly get it to an editor? What's your process to get from that first draft, that first kind of, ah, this, this will work <laughs> draft to moving it forward? Yeah. You know, many people really benefit from the collaboration involved. They, they want a lot of early readers and it actually can be a great way to build support for the book in some ways that uh, if you have this this team of people that have been offering advice and feedback from the beginning, they're usually pretty loyal ambassadors. So I think that that can be a really good way to hold yourself accountable. That being said, for me, I, I just personally take a slightly different approach. I used to be a, a journalist, so I have possibly misplaced. Uh, but nonetheless, I have, <laughs> I have confidence in my writing and my ability to have what in, in, the, in the world of journalism, they say a clean, a, you know, cl to create clean copy, a clean first draft, right. meaning that it is, you know, it's pretty good. There, there's not, there's certainly edits, but it's not like piles of edits. And so what I worry about more is actually too many cooks in the kitchen, because mm. if you have 20 people reading your book, they're probably going to have 20 different opinions and you can get right. it pulled in a lot of different directions because one person might say to you, oh, you really need more about this. And then the other person's like, oh my God, you have to have less about this. This is so boring. And you just, you get paralyzed because you don't know what to do. And so I often just want to trust my gut on the, on the actual text and then listen to who, who I think is the relevant expert, which is my editor and try to shut out a lot of voices. I mean, early on, I do, I do appreciate feedback early on where you're kind of asking the initial question, hey, I'm writing this book about such and such. What are the main topics you're interested in? And that's great. But once you get into the weeds on it, it can become very distracting to have a lot of people offering you sometimes contradictory advice. That's great advice. I often tell people exactly what you said. Have early readers to engage an audience, but take their advice slightly. Um, yeah. Because that's the book that never gets written because it's perpetually being edited or changed before it actually becomes a book. Of course, you are definitely probably an editor and publishing house's dream because you, you produce really great work from the get-go. If we, our listeners don't know, you, I mean, you, you're definitely somewhat of a gifted young person. And you're, I think at 14, you, you started college, you graduated at 18. So you were you, you've been on this journey for a while. So just because you, 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 I mean, for a decade, you've been doing your entrepreneurial work, but you've been really at this academic work for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. I, I have. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, the other thing that struck me is that, that you decided it would be a good idea to be a documentary filmmaker. So tell us about that a little bit. I know it doesn't have anything to do with writing exactly, but we can talk about it a little bit because I'm curious. 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have always enjoyed creative pursuits. And in fact, I, in moving, which I, I recently moved into a, a new condo in New York, I have been going through all of these old papers that like my mother foisted on me from our house in North Carolina. <laughs> Take and these, one, please. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I found from 1991 was this, we had to do some essay about where we thought we would be uh, in 10 years. And so, you know, so what, what would I be doing in 2001? And what I said that I thought I would be doing was that I would be in film school. So that was, uh, I, I always liked movies and film and, and things like that. And of course, I did not end up being a for real professional filmmaker, but I have dabbled in it. And to your point, it wasn't quite 2001, but from 2007 to 2010, I worked on directing a documentary film on the side, basically. And I'm actually looking at the DVD <laughs> that, you know, that, we, <laughs> that we have right right now, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the bound and framed DVD, as it were. It's called Marion Stoddart, The Work of 1000. And it is a environmental documentary about a woman who this, this housewife who helped successfully lead the cleanup of one of America's most polluted rivers. And we go into depth talking about exactly what she did and how this woman who did not have any particular training or background in environmental issues taught herself how to become an advocate for her community. So this is a really pretty cool project to be involved in. That's amazing. Yeah, the work of a thousand seems like it would be a great documentary to watch. Is it one of those things that, you know, you find it and you get it on DVD or is it somewhere else that people could watch it if they want to? <laughs> it's it's unfortunately not incredibly accessible. <laughs> it's uh, It was distributed through something called DER, Documentary Educational Resources. And so it's not like it's available on Netflix, let's say, or, or even YouTube. One has to order it. It's typically for educational um institutions, like an environmental studies class at a university or at a high school, for instance, would would order it through DER. But, you know, if any anybody wants to come to New York, we can do a screening. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. That'd be great. What an inspiring way to talk about the power of creation because her story's, you know, known because of that work, which is fantastic. So talking about creative pursuits, you also were a producer, a Grammy winning jazz album. How did that come about? Yeah, that was a, a pretty great experience and you know, one that I never thought would would happen, you know, being able to go to the Grammys to be on stage at the Grammys as uh, as we <laughs> accepting this award. That was basically through networking, which is part of me trying my best to practice what I preach. I am a big fan and a big advocate of talking about having diverse and broad networks and why they are interesting and valuable. And so one example of that is I have a, a friend named Kabir Siegel, who I met because he, among many other things, is a writer and wrote a business book about the history of money. Mm. And we got to know each other through that. But he also is a very serious jazz musician and a producer of jazz albums. And so I basically helped him out with an introduction that was valuable to him. And as a thank you, he invited me to come on board as a producer of this album that he was working on. And he said, you know, oh, I think this is going to be really good. I think this is really going somewhere. And sure enough, he was right. And that became a uh, multiple Grammy winning album. It was called Presidential Suites by the Ted Nash Big Band. And so in 2017, it won a couple of Grammys. That's amazing. 
So for people out there who are wanting to write and wanting to use a book maybe to grow their brand, uh, maybe make a pivot or do something different, how do you suggest that they take a first step? Because a lot of people, they're like, well, that's great for Dory. She was a journalist. She's really you know, well-connected. But help us understand what they could do if they're wanting to start writing a book that maybe they have some content, maybe they have something to say. But what would you suggest they do for their first step out? Well, I think that oftentimes starting with a book is a bit of an intimidating proposition for someone, especially if they're formulating their ideas or formulating their intellectual property around a concept. And so what I would probably suggest is that you start by blogging, which is actually what I did, not intentionally, not because that's what I really wanted to do, but uh, <laughs> but I discovered that the publishers were really big on making sure that they were backing people who had a so-called platform, meaning that people have heard of you, that you have a vehicle through which to get your ideas out there and covered. And so they're really big on platform. And one of the ways that you can establish it is becoming a blogger. And the good news about that is that you can use that as a way of testing your ideas and seeing which ones resonate with audiences and also honing your ideas. You could interview other people and just try things out until you hit upon something that feels like such a rich veined tap that you realize, oh, okay, I could absolutely keep writing about this and this could become a book. Because some topics that might seem like a good idea, you might actually discover that there's not quite enough there for you to to keep going with it. And conversely, other ones might be surprisingly fruitful for you. That was actually you know, it's it's a. I say it now as a strategy, but that was actually an inadvertent uh, strategy. It was it was something that I kind of lucked into in writing a blog post for the Harvard Business Review called "How to Reinvent Your Personal Brand." I wrote that piece in 2010, and that ended up becoming my the seed of my first book, "Reinventing You." Right, sprung from that blog post. And I think that's really great advice. Uh, I was talking to a. Uh a young lady yesterday who's, she didn't want to write a book. She knows, I think she says, I know better. I'm not ready to write a book, but I want to write a blog. I want to start a blog. And she goes, but I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to start. She goes, through the process, I discovered she loves research. She loves finding out, getting a question and digging into more academic research to find out what's been written about it. And I said, wait, maybe you shouldn't be focusing on writing. Maybe your skill is in researching if that's what you love. If you are avoiding writing constantly, don't build a business on writing a blog, if that's not what you love or that's not what you feel you can contribute, maybe you do. But if you do, maybe you start with a, a platform, a publication, writing for Thrive Global, put some stuff on Medium, some magazines, submissions online. So I think you're right. I think people don't fret that if you're wondering about a book now, think about writing as the long game. It's a habit. It's a, it's a contribution to the world. And I told this young woman, Alexa, I was like, look, there's a lot of people who don't like researching at all. And you would be a wonderful commodity for somebody to a service to say, look, here's my topic. I'd like 10 publications that would cite some sources about this. And she's like, oh, I love that. I'm like, oh, good. Because a lot of us would be like, oh, no, please don't let me do that. <laughs> yes, that's great. I love it. Yeah. So as I think about your book, you know, one of the things that as you talk, like this is definitely one of the practices you talk about building from the beginning is how did you decide when was the point at which you would create something outside of your book, like a course or a class or an actual in-person thing? What was the, the direction you decided to choose? And, and you talk a lot about differentiating and kind of like diversifying your suite of offerings as an entrepreneur in this book. 
What was your first step forward that you wanted to share here with the audience? Like why that and what was it like? Well, I wanted to approach it carefully and strategically in a lot of ways, because I think that we can all think probably personally of examples of folks that we know that have maybe rushed into spending a lot of money on creating something like an online course, and then two people buy it because they they haven't necessarily thought it through or they don't have an audience. And I did not want to be that person. I I wanted, if I was going to take the time and bother to create something, to make sure that it would do well. And so I knew that I probably had to go slow to go fast, mm. as it were. So in my book, Stand Out, I laid out, which came out in 2015, I laid out a framework about how ideas spread. And this was something that I learned through research and through profiling these you know, 50 thought leaders who had really become known as experts in their field. And what I discovered was a commonality that they shared was that ultimately the kind of final step of their thought leadership was that they built a community around their idea. It wasn't just them promulgating it. They had a real community where other people were saying, you know, this is me. This, you know, I, I, uh, these ideas are speaking to me. I want to adopt them as well. And so I knew that that was the, the end state of what makes things really successful. But I wasn't honestly at that point quite sure how to get there. I thought an online course would be interesting. I had been intrigued by it for a while, but I had also done a lot of experiments. In 2014, I recorded a course with Creative Live. In 2015, I did a short course with a company called Learningly, which is partnering with The Economist. So I had these experiences where I was kind of, you know, fooling around a little bit, uh, just trying to trying to learn how things were done. Right. But then I, I finally felt ready. And so part of writing Entrepreneurial You for me, this research process was actually me trying to kill two birds with one stone because I was able to interview people in depth and ask a lot of very detailed questions about online course creation. And so I used that as a starting point for me to really glean insight and basically get, you know, like, like a pick your brain session for free uh, right. <laughs> in the course of writing the book. And so I got all this knowledge and I thought, all right, this is great. I'm going to try this. I'm going to apply this myself. And so part of what I did in parallel to writing and researching Entrepreneurial U was that I launched in April 2016 a pilot of the Recognized Expert course, which mm. has become my, my flagship course. And uh, I did a, a pilot of it for 40 people. It's, it, I w it was amazed by the response to it. It sold out within 45 minutes wow. and I had to put a, put a cap on it. And so then for six weeks, we ran this pilot. And then by the, I learned a lot and was able to kind of adapt and refine the course. And then by September of that year, I was able to launch in earnest uh, a full session of that course. And do you, for, this is for people who are maybe learning more about, about their, their ability to share. Do you create your courses on your own platform? Do you, do you use um, multiple platforms and partnerships? I think you, you, you still probably have courses on Creative Live, but what's your strategy around that? Yeah, I, the most lucrative courses, of course, are the ones that you create yourself because a lot, you know, the, the fee, the margin comes not just from sharing your advice, which in some ways is a little bit of a commodity, even if it's really good, it's being able to attract the audience. And so I always make a lot more money from courses that I develop and sell myself as compared to ones that I do for other entities. But I, I do I do, do some of that because it is good, good exposure 
and just a different way to reach people. So I, I have a number of courses out on LinkedIn Learning, the former lynda.com, and mm-hmm. that's been a really great partnership as well. But yeah, so I, for my recognized expert course, which is $2,000, and then I have some a few smaller, kind of less intensive courses, like my Rapid Content Creation Masterclass, those are things that I offer myself. The platform that I use for hosting is called Thinkific, but the sales are to my own audience, my own list, and that way you're able to you know fully harness the uh, the proceeds of it. Right, and you know as I am learning more about your work, people always wonder, well, will I make a lot of money from my book? And is the book a way to make a living? And I try to help people understand that your book is sort of the launching pad to creation and to other opportunities. How do you view it? Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's right. It is, uh, it is not particularly lucrative to write books. I mean, you know, for some people it is, of course, you know, if you, if you are lucky enough to, to find yourself being John Grisham or somebody right. like that, Malcolm Gladwell, who has already proven that they can sell millions of copies of books, you know, they will get a very handsome advance. But for the mere mortals among us, especially new authors, the chances that you would get a six-figure advance, unless you are already famous in some other way, are exceptionally small. You will put a lot of time and effort into something that will get you instead tens of thousands of dollars, if that, in some cases. But it will be much more likely, to, if you're doing a traditionally published deal, to be in the tens of thousands rather than certainly the, the hundreds of thousands. So it's a lot of effort for something that, you know, ROI-wise, you can make a lot more money doing something else. However, it does give you a huge dose of expertise, and you can make quite a bit of money on the back end if you are strategic about it. Right. And what, what do you mean by back end for people that may not know exactly what you mean? Because they're, they're imagining this. Maybe they're thinking courses, but how do you mean back end? The, so if we're talking about the back end, what I mean really is... Uh, just anything besides what is what is direct income from the book. So that could be speaking engagements, that could be online course sales to your list that you build, other things like that, sort of next step of how to make money. Right. So I think that's really important for people here is that it could go multiple directions. Speaking, it could be uh, creating courses. It could be also building uh, rapport and relationships with other influencers. And your book, you do talk about the fact that there's something that's less temporal about a book as opposed to maybe a blog or even a podcast that people seem to to value it in a different way. Why do you think that's so? Well, a, a book has a real history of cultural cachet. I mean, we are at an inflection point now where thanks to digital content, it's becoming increasingly difficult to tell the difference, you know, it's between blogs and books and whatever. I mean, you know, they're sort of packaged in similar ways. I mean, the length obviously is different, but even that's blurring. You see a lot more books that are coming out that are, you know, like an ebook that's 100 pages or something. But throughout time, a book really was a kind of singular expression of value and expertise. And I think that there is a, a lingering cultural consciousness about that. Mm. I think that's a, a great point. I think people somehow value it. And still, you know, 70% of people don't even know exactly what a podcast is. So I think it's really important to know. No one, even a five-year-old, would doubt that this is a book and it means something. So I think, I think with the invent or the advent of like having 
something like uh, print on demand and that you, you have access to amazing designers, global editors, you could make your book be really quality. And it's difficult to tell if how it was printed, how it was created, though there is a you mentioned in your book that there is a sense of maybe borrowing the reputation of validity of a publishing house or a particular press. Would you agree that that's that's uh, something that people can consider? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I think that self publishing these days is a, still a, it, it's a it's a perfectly legitimate option. You know, as we all know, it was heavily stigmatized in the past. That is not the case at all now. But there is still a bit of psychological weight that comes from having a well-known brand name publisher attached to you. I think that in many ways, it parallels the situation around higher education. You can still be very successful without a college degree. I mean, all the, the talk about is college necessary or the Teal fellowships that Peter Teal is funding, which encourages people to skip college uh, and work mm-hmm. on something else. You can be very successful. But simultaneously, if you go to an Ivy League school or you have a so-called, you know, like an Ivy League publisher, you know, whether it's like a HarperCollins or a, you know, a Penguin, a Simon & Schuster, like those types of things that people have heard of, it does make a difference. Where there is a hollowing out is in the middle category, because if you are published with a commercial publishing house that is small and no one has heard of it, you may kind of be falling into the abyss where it's less lucrative than self-publishing and it's a lot more of a hassle than self-publishing in terms of you know the editing process and kind of the bureaucracy and whatever, but it doesn't necessarily have the brand cachet to make up for those hassles. Right. I think that's still going to be true. You're paying the brand identity in anything, whether it's online marketing or anything else or the shoes we buy. People still find value in a shoe they recognize as opposed to one they have to learn about. But it's important to know that there's options for people. When you believe it, you your audiobook was you. Did you choose to record your book uh, yourself or how did that work out? Because people are always asking me about audiobook. Yeah, I did do the recording for both Standout and Entrepreneurial You. Reinventing You, my first book, was somebody else. And in fact, you know, this is this remains an area where I, I continue to be uh, somewhat pissed off at my publisher <laughs> because they, you know, I didn't know what questions to ask as a first time author. And so they sold the audio rights without even telling me. And so by the time it kind of came around, I'm like, oh, by the way, you know, what are we doing about audio? They're like, oh, that's sold. That's recorded, blah, blah. I'm like, wait, I would have wanted to record it. They're like, oh, really? Oh, that's crazy. Gee, we didn't know. And, you know, it's like, oh, come on, people. <laughs> so by the time I had my second book, my third book, I knew that you have to watch them like a hawk and yeah. demand that, you know, when the rights are sold, that you are put in touch with those people and that you make it clear that you want to to do the reading yourself. And in fact, I mean, there's a lot of inanities to it or inanities, I guess you pronounce it, in that for standout, they were like, skeptical of me wanting to do it. And so they wanted me to do a tryout to read my own book. They were like, oh, well, do you have experience with this? And, but, you know, and, and then they were saying, oh, well, you know, you can come, but you have, you can do it, but you have to fly to Michigan to record it. I'm like, excuse me, I live in New York. There are studios (laughs) in New York, I'm pretty sure. And so I had to get like almost violently aggressive with them in order to convince them that, that no, really I could do this. So 
you do have to fight for it, which seems silly to me because so often I hear from people that they really, I mean, unless there's like a problem where the author is a terrible speaker, most people prefer to hear the author do it themselves. But a lot of these audio publishers are resistant to that idea somehow, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think a lot of us do like to, I love hearing Seth Godin read his books, or I love hearing you read your book because I feel like I'm having a relationship with you. I'm connecting with you because your content coming from you helps. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people that probably can't do it, to be honest. I'm sure that's their experience that people think they can or think they have stamina and then they give up on the process. But if you care about your book and you're an author, definitely fight for those rights as well as foreign rights. I don't think people understand, you know, have somebody look at your contract because you could negotiate your the sale of your foreign rights too. I know you have multiple books that are in many languages. Tell us about that. Yeah, I do. I actually just got copy yesterday in the mail. You know, when your book gets published in a foreign language, they'll send you a few complimentary copies to have. And I just got copies. I did not actually even know speaking. It's, it's very hard to keep track of, of these things sometimes because the publishers are not the best at keeping you in the loop. But apparently the Indonesian rights for Stand Out <laughs> have sold. And not, they not only sold, they apparently sold quite a while ago because I got three copies of an Indonesian edition of my book in the mail. So I'm like, oh, that's, that's interesting. I was not expecting that. And last week, it, this seems to be a little bit of a bonanza. Last week, I got copies in Thai of my first book, Reinventing You. So yeah, things are hopping. Uh, the, uh, so, so the books, my three books are now out. I'm going to lose track, but it's Arabic, Chinese. We have Indonesian and Korean. We have French. So there's Russian. There's a Russian edition of uh, Reinventing You. So there's uh, oh Polish we have as mm. well. So it's it's very cool to see where they come out. Finally, a Portuguese one is going to be done of both, I believe, both Reinventing You and Entrepreneurial You, which is exciting. Um, I've, yet to, I've yet to get Spanish, though, which is uh, annoying. <laughs> I, I, that's probably the one that I get requested the most, but the Spanish rights have, have yet to sell. So uh, right. just kind of waiting for that one. So what's the process as we finish up here for the, the rights to get sold? Does your, does your publisher handle that or does your agent handle that and say, hey, here's what's happening? Or, as you, or are they just happening and you're like being told after the fact? I am being told after the fact or, or it, sometimes after the fact, but more often it will be announced to me that there has been an offer on the foreign rights and am I okay with that? And I mean, yes, the, yes. the answer is I am okay with that. But because I've, I've operated through mainstream publishing houses, they have a foreign rights division. So they handle the process themselves. What I understand it basically looks like is they have, they have a guy for HBR, this guy's named John, and he basically goes to the big book fairs. Frankfurt is the, the biggest one there's other gatherings throughout the year where they basically just kind of mix and mingle and do matchmaking and right. they pitch their catalog of books and see what they can gin up. And during those sessions, they try to generate interest and afterwards they will come back and, and let you know what leads they have and what offers are on the table. And so I've been fortunate that my my books have made it into a number of languages. I mean, you know, whether I mean, it's never particularly lucrative, especially for smaller foreign markets. You're probably going to get maybe a thousand or two thousand dollars for the for the rights of it. So it's it's not like it's a huge income boost, but it is a really nice thing if you want to do international speaking. It certainly helps make new audiences aware of you, 
and it gives you something cool where you can you can actually say to the organizer, oh, well, the book's available in Russian. You know, would you like to buy a copy for the attendees or something like that? And uh, it's just kind of that extra level of, of street cred, which is exciting for folks. Right. I remember when Pat Flynn got his first, he's like, I'm in Korea, y'all. <laughs> it's exciting. It's because it's, it's the impact that your words are having, the effort you took to sit down at a, at a computer or a pad and write these words are having a global impact, which is really quite astonishing in a way that's maybe different because in some communities, they're not surrounded every single thing with internet information in their own language. They're having to filter it through other means. I know the first time I had somebody from, I think, uh, Sylvania reach out to me from my TED Talk after it got translated. A lot of people worked on translations and they're, they were so excited that they could see it. And they held, held a whole conference over the talk I gave and asked permission to share share it with me. And I was like, this is amazing. Like from one thing you created, you could make an impact on people you may never meet in person. And it's quite extraordinary. That's so cool. That's great. Yeah. Well, it's been such a, uh, an incredible time talking with you. I feel like I could probably chat to you about books all day long. I want to be respectful of your time. Where would you like people to go to know more about you and to like learn about what you teach? It's so incredible. If anyone's looking to grow in their career or, or maybe create multiple streams of income and really thrive, where would they go to learn about how to monetize uh, their expertise? Yeah, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. For folks who are interested in learning more, kind of the hub where I would send them is my website, which is doryclark.com. It's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. I have more than 400 free articles available there that people can access and download. But I'll also mention, particularly around the creating multiple income streams, whether it's around your writing or other aspects around it, I do have a free resource, which is the Entrepreneurial You Self-Assessment. It's 88 questions that you can ask yourself to help formulate a plan to create multiple income streams. And folks can get that for free at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's wonderful talking with you. Awesome. Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story, how they got there, and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave an honest review, and you can always find me at coachazul.com.